Hello, and thank you for listening to this Fun Board Council podcast. This is a 15-minute excerpt of our longer podcasts, and the full podcasts are available exclusively to Fun Board Council members via their member portal. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more about membership, please do contact us via our website at funboards.org. In the meantime, happy listening. Very warm welcome to those of you uh, who have just joined us. Uh, I'm Catherine Battershill from Fund Boards Council, and we're delighted that you're able to join us for this session, uh, looking at how uh, pension funds and mutual funds measure value. Now, we tend to think of uh, assessment of value as a um, relatively new development, uh, new to the fund world at least, but actually measuring value in all of its various different guises uh, is definitely not a new concept and value for money uh, has been an important part of governance uh, for the pensions industry for quite some time. And in the various conversations that we've been having at FBC, it's certainly uh, become clear to us that there are many parallels between the conversations that we're having as an organisation and our members are having uh, and those that are going on on pensions committees. And so it just seemed to us obvious to try and bring together some experts uh, in both of those areas to look at this in a bit more detail um, and to determine whether there's any learnings that we can uh, draw from, from one another's experience. And obviously, while uh, assessment of value and value for money are hugely important subjects in their own right, we also try today to link it uh, to some of the wider governance themes um, that seem to be common across pensions and, and mutual funds as well. The role of independence, uh, the optimum structure and resourcing these committees and boards need uh, to deliver effective governance and value to the end investor. And indeed, that's where we're going to start in a minute or so. But let me just first of all give you, say a word or two about our panel. Uh, they bring expertise from across investment governance, um, most notably independent governance committees, IGCs, which you'll hear a lot about in a minute, uh, master trusts, and of course, fund boards. We're delighted that hosting the main part of our discussion today is David Butcher, who's been instrumental in helping us uh, think through this topic and to shape uh, and in shaping today's session. David has a vast array of governance experience and now sits on the IGC and the Master Trust of Scottish Widows, um, and he's also a member of FBC's own advisory council. We're also delighted that joining him is uh, JB Beckett, well-known author and commentator on fund strategy and governance issues and a former fund selector. Uh, JB is now the director on the board on the board of SVM Asset Management and is a member of the Investment Advisory Committee at Royal London. And last but not least, we're very pleased to welcome Ian Costain. Ian is an independent consultant and actuary with many years experience uh, under his belt. He now sits on the IGCs of Reassure and Hargreaves Lansdowne. So you're all very welcome. Thank you in advance for your, for your time and expertise today. Before we kick off, uh, just a quick word. We'd love to take your questions as always. So please do type them in uh, at, at any point during the conversation and uh, we will try to get as many of those in as we can uh, towards the end of the session. So let's get started. Uh, David, uh, it's fair to say that I think that IGCs have been in the FCA's spotlight for, for a while now, um, and the, with the regulator looking at whether they're well-structured, uh, sufficiently independent and resourced to act effectively in, in investors' interests. Perhaps you could start for us by just sort of outlining what they are, how they're structured, um, and, and why, the, why the FCA is particularly, the areas that the FCA is particularly interested in, um, in particular with this latest consultation. Well, the structure has tended to be um, having an independent chair and two independent members, along with um, two members of the senior executive team. And I think you're right, They've the FCA have been considering effectiveness um, and independence for some time. And I think it's fair to say that 
Um, in principle, they do consider IGCs to be a force for good in value in, in, in reducing charges and fees and, uh, and so on um, from some providers over, across certain product ranges within workplace pensions. Um, but having said that, clearly the FCA see that there is, a, on the one hand, a wide variation in the way the different IGCs operate, firstly. Um, secondly, they see um, a significant variation in what they perceive to be independence or the degree of independence across different IGCs. Um, and I think they're particularly conscious of um, what they see as the level and the frequency of challenge, um, you know, the level of effectiveness in taking uh, contentious issues um, to the executive, but particularly up to the insurance boards. And as you know, of course, they're subcommittees of those boards. And I, I think they see all of those issues as having a significant impact ultimately um, on outcomes. And so that's the, the motivation behind focusing on those different aspects of governance. Thank you. And I know we're going to come on to talk about, about independence. Um, is that something you want to touch on now with Ian and uh, JB? Um, yes, I was just going to add, actually, that it's, it's probably worth, um, you know, you were asking me why the FCA is driven in the way it is. I, th I think it's probably worth reminding ourselves that um, the starting point for the FCA is to see a, a more competitive market for savers in workplace pensions across the piece, so across trust-based pensions and contract-based pensions. And also it's worth emphasising that they have had a particular focus on, on costs, you know, on administration charges, on, on transaction costs. And so, you know, whilst they do see some improvement, they fundamentally do want IGCs to have more teeth. They want more independence, more challenge, and they want them to be more proactive. And perhaps before just um, passing your question on to um, Ian and JB, um, a couple of examples um, for um, our participants on how um, the FCA want IGCs to be more proactive. Um, it's probably worth mentioning those that there's a couple. Firstly, when it comes to investment pathways, um, we're already more proactive in the sense that IGCs are no longer just asking questions about investment content, but they're required to sign off that content as being appropriate in terms of uh, member needs and member outcomes. Um, and secondly, they're required to sign off the communications packages um, as being fit for purpose. And uh, those, those are two points I know that, that both Ian and JB have um, strong views about. And just to flag the second um, aspect of proactivity, which we'll come on to later when we discuss value, the latest consultation, uh, CP29, there's a significant ratcheting up of IGCs taking a more proactive role. And it's a, it's a ratcheting up in the sense that uh, the proposal is to move from internal governance, in other words, governance with the provider, to external governance, comparing one's provider uh, with other providers in terms of value for money. And I think that's a key issue to, to come back to later on. But just on the question of independence, I'd like to, um, I'd like to put that question to Ian, um, first of all. I mean, cl clearly, Ian, the FCA is very concerned about 
um, the level of independence and how that's impacting on the, the quality of governance. And I'd be really interested in how you see that issue generally and, and how you see it evolving. Yeah, thank, thank you, David. Um, earlier this year, the FCA published the thematic review, which was their review of the effectiveness of IGCs. And I think David has very usefully summarized some of the key points um, coming out of that. But what, what I would say is that IGCs have been exist in existence for over five years now. I, I don't think that the FCA have been overly concerned about how IGCs have been operating. Um, they said that they would review IGCs after two or three years, and, and actually it's taken them kind of five years to, to, to review them. Um, there have been some there have been some industry commentators. I think many of us uh, know Henry Tapper. So each year Henry Tapper um, has been reviewing the annual reports that uh, IGCs produce and critiquing them. Also, a couple of years ago, Share Action did a piece on IGCs as well. So, so you know, in many ways, I think um, I don't think the the FCA were overly concerned. Um, but yes, it was the right time, I think, after five years to, to, to start reviewing IGCs. Now, one of the aspects that we'll come on to later um, that David's touched on already is that where the FCA are particularly interested is seeing more benchmarking. So they are very interested in IGCs looking at their schemes and comparing them with other schemes. And we'll come on to this later. Um, but that is, that, that is a key driver for, for, for the FCA. I think, I think in the first instance, it's worth taking a little bit of a step back and thinking about why IGCs came about. Because I think it's always instructive to know you know what what is you know what what drove the FCA's thinking in the first place, and and it takes us back uh, seven years now, to the OFT, the Office of Fair Trading, did a review of workplace pensions, and and you know as economists, you know that's how they looked at it, and they recognised that there was a very weak demand side. Um, you know we all know about. Um, information asymmetry. So they recognized that the demand side amongst customers was very weak um, and that competition alone was not enough to drive value for money. And there's one other aspect that I think is key about workplace pensions is that the customer, that the end customer does not choose the product provider. The pension scheme is chosen by the employer in conjunction um, obviously, uh, with an advisor. So, so I think you know. I think it's important to recognise that 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 was the starting point for IGCs. It was recognising that competition wasn't enough, and here we had customers who didn't make the choice of product provider themselves. So, I think to to, to that extent, the FCA were clear in terms of what they wanted from IGCs, and indeed the rules in the conduct of business source book from the FCA is pretty clear in terms of what it wants from IGCs and indeed has set out quite a detailed terms of reference within that. So it's about being clear that as members of IGCs, we are representing the interests of customers. Um, it's 
clear that it's about assessing value for money and we'll talk a lot more uh, in due course about the assessment of value for money um, and it's about challenging the provider constructively challenging the provider if, if, if there's areas any areas of concern so what the so way back then um, and incorporated in in the COBS rules are how these are, are going to be structured so basically it's a minimum of five members on an IGC um, three of whom, at least three of whom have to be independent and the chair has to be one of the independent members. So that is the minimum requirement that, uh, that the FCA set down. And quite a few of them have this three independent, two company representative splits. But we've seen some. Uh, Zorik Financial Services, for example, from the start, kicked off with all five members being independent. Um, in terms of the IGCs that I sit on, um, one of them um, has four independent members and one company representative. Another of them has four independent members and two company representatives. So yeah, the, 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 there's you know the, the shades uh, shades within that. Now, in terms of the company representatives. I think they've got a I think they've got a really kind of quite difficult challenge because sitting on the committee um, they are supposed to look purely at the interest of the customer so actually it's kind of quite a challenge taking them away from their day job and and the company that pays their salary and look at it from a, a slightly different perspective now I think where the FCA came from is that what they correctly observed was they didn't see enough evidence of independence. So the reality is that IGCs don't have a budget as such. The secretariat for the IGC is provided by the company, um, but also nearly every product provider has a senior manager within their company as the point of liaison between the product provider and the IGC. And therefore, as I say, I, I think it was more a perception because I think if, if we as IGCs are, are honest, we, we might not have documented and provided the evidence that we did. So, so the learning from that particular point that IGCs are taking is to ensure that the documentation is clear and that there's an audit trail of the that, that demonstrates that independence and how they have challenged the uh, product provider. We hope you enjoyed that 15-minute uh, excerpt. If you did and you'd like to find out more about how you can access the full recording uh, or about FBC membership in general, please contact us via our website at funboards.org.